I'm Colter DeVries with RanchInvestor.com. We give you the tools to build and manage wealth through ranch ownership. I'm Andy Ron, accredited rural appraiser and creator of Montana Land Source, the ultimate resource for the Montana land market. Montana Land Source is the only place where you can find all large acreage listings on the market in Montana today, as well as recent sales. We provide maps, market statistics, and analysis, and Montana land news and events. Find us at mtlandsource.com. Hi, I'm Denver Gilbert, licensed broker and owner of Clark & Associates Land Brokers. We've been helping buyers and sellers of farm and ranch properties in six states since 2005. We've been averaging a little over $100 million in ranch real estate sales annually. Season 2, Episode 7 with Sean Puckett. Sean is a chartered alternative investment analyst, a chartered financial analyst, and he is with NextGen Financial Group. Uh, this is going to be really exciting, Andy. And Sean, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Yeah. This is what we wanted to get to with this podcast, talking about alternative investments. And we have uh, a specialist here who deals with this specifically. And I know uh, that the accreditations he has, I've looked into them. Chartered uh, financial analyst is one of the most difficult accreditations to get uh, in finance for finance professionals. So very impressive that you have that as well as the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst accreditation. Thank you to all of our listeners. We are over 2,000 members on Facebook. Uh, I wanted to give a shout out with this episode in particular. Wanted to give a shout out to uh, Rory Doss in Kerrville, Texas. Uh, he wants to find some investors for a ranch. Keisha Roberts in Florida, same thing, looking for investors. And then Kurt Sandberg in Colorado. Uh, he had some thoughts about liquidity, but maintaining ownership of the place. Um, so. Uh, I think this is really going to apply. And uh, the title of this podcast, this episode, is How Does the Average Person Invest in a Large Ranch? Uh, that is buying in, but I think that if the average person is investing in a large ranch, uh, that goes for how does the average person uh, liquidate part of their ranch. And before we get into that, uh, I am going to ask our audience... Uh, we don't advertise, we don't monetize this, we don't have uh, commercials or anything. Andy and I do this mainly because we like to hear ourselves talk. <laughs> and and uh, But the ask is, uh, now that we're over 2,000 members on Facebook, um, what, 7,000 downloads on average, Levy, uh, we want to hear some feedback. It's important to us, if there was a platform out there, if there was a marketplace to where the average person, let's say, uh, what do you guys call them in uh, in uh, financial advising? The uh, teachers and the the people you got to protect, the teachers and the, the pensioners. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's accurate. <laughs> the teachers and pensioners. If there's a way for teachers and pensioners to invest in a ranch, mm -hmm. uh, please message us on Facebook. Shoot me an email, ranchinvestors at gmail.com. Uh, but let us know, would you be interested at maybe, say, $10,000 uh, doing retail-type investing in real, legitimate, tangible ranches uh, in the Western United States? And uh, is, is there a demand for that? So please let us know. And uh, with that, we've, we get some spam on the Facebook, some crypto bots, and uh, they do messages. This, this uh, episode has nothing to do with... Uh, the Arabians who are uh, promoting Bitcoin <laughs> and crypto investments on our Facebook page and asking you to use uh, 
oh geez, um, some messenger app Facebook owns. I forget what the hell that is. WhatsApp. WhatsApp. <laughs> yeah, they're asking you to pay them and talk via WhatsApp. So this has nothing to do with that. Let's get started, Sean. Please introduce yourself, your background, what we're going to be talking about with uh, liquidity, uh, a marketplace, retail investing in ranches, and uh, alternative investments. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I mean, I think I'll start basically, you know, thank you for the kind intro of the CFA and the Kaya. Um, those are two designations I got from 2015 to 2019. They're long process, you know, three exams and then the Kaya's two exams, low pass rates. So that was a um, very difficult four years to achieve those. But going through that, I was actually working for the Treasury doing bank regulation. So that's where I started. I started in financial services back in 2011, so about 10 years in financial services. But during bank regulation, I got to work on um, the Dodd-Frank Act and also the Volcker Rule, where essentially you go into banks, you make sure that they're, they're doing their trading correctly, and then the Dodd-Frank stress testing tells you whether or not they get to pay dividends that year based on a stress test where they shock their balance sheet and see what happens to their capital. Um, but during that experience, I also got to look at a lot of the ag loans, uh, particularly in a bank in Utah. And, uh, you know, so I kind of understood the underwriting of, you know, ranches and cattle operations and got to hear some very, uh, creative stories of some ranches in Texas, <laughs> which was fun. Um, but coming out the other end of that, I, I started working in, you know, asset management, investment management, uh, for a company down in Scottsdale as chief investment officer. And then 2019, uh, left there and started my own firm, uh, NextGen Financial Group. And, um, you know, essentially helping individuals manage money <clears throat> on both the public and the alternative investment side. And through that, you know, alternative investments, traditionally, you had to be an accredited investor. Meaning which, a net worth of $2 million, liquid, liquid $2 million? $1 million, $1 million. excluding your house, yep. And then there's some income deals, too. You can get around that if you have 250000 in income. For three years yeah. in a row. Yep. Um, but if you think of, you know, the benefit of alternative investments is generally the liquidity premium that you get. Hmm. Because public markets, you go on, you can buy Apple tonight, and then you can sell it a minute later. You know, if you're, if you're in the liquid markets. Alternative investments have a liquidity premium, which is essentially, if you're an investor going into a ranch or you know, a commercial building, you can't just go and sell it overnight, right? So your, your money's kind of locked up. There's a premium for that. Investors will pay a premium um, to get access to those. But if you think of you know, the United States, um, I mean, there's 13 million plus accredited investors, but there's 150 million savers. And the average saver has about $10,000. <laughs> so if you want to start talking about how do people get access to alternatives, most times the minimums, I mean, I don't know what the typical ranch is to invest in, but I have to imagine it's, it's well above a million dollars. So yeah. if you're, if, <laughs> I mean, if you're doing that by yourself or maybe you have, you know, another family you're going into it with, that's still, you know, a lot of capital to get access to. So the high minimums are kind of a barrier to entry. They've always been a barrier to entry for non-accredited individuals to get access. Another reason is because of just financial literacy. I think there's an assumption by the government that if you're an accredited investor, you have some understanding of how markets work and, and investment. You may use a financial professional to help you. So it's also a mechanism to protect 
unsophisticated investors from pretty much getting screwed, hmm. which is a good part of it. But that's where a good financial advisor and due diligence officer and investment manager should be that kind of front line to help people get into those investments and do due diligence on them to make sure they're not getting screwed. And that's kind of my job. Yeah, you guys are the most highly regulated industry in, in the world. And uh, that is to protect the, the teachers and widowers. I remember that now, teachers yeah. and widowers. You got you to gotta protect uh, the government believes that uh, people aren't smart enough to manage their own investments. And so you have to protect the average uh, blue-collar worker out there who only has 10000 in savings and yep. maybe 350000 in equity between their 401k and their home. But the, the upside benefits, and Andy has been tracking this for many years to alternative investments, ranches in particular, and we're talking about ranch land, specifically Western ranch lands, not the operation of cowboys and cattle uh, and crops, but ranch land as an investment, that is, it's exclusive and that's unfair. Uh, because it comes with such a high barrier to entry, you have to have such a high net worth that it is so exclusive that it leaves out a lot of people who could benefit from the inflation uh, um, correlation of ranches, highly highly correlated ranch lands to inflation. Um, it leaves them out from from having other diversity. Uh, you probably recommend 10 to 15% of your portfolio should be in alternatives, whether that's coins, art, ranch land, uh, classic cars, um, stamps, real estate, real estate, 10 to 15% uh, held, held in alternative assets. The average person, unless they're going to collect coins and stamps, can't get any exposure to alternatives because it's the good old boys club. It is so exclusive to the ultra wealthy and the elite of the United States and the world. Does yeah, that correct me if I'm wrong? And that seems to be getting worse. Uh, and you know, the market we're in right now, you know, is just hotter than hell and, and inventory's down and prices are up. And so it's only getting worse. So Sean, yeah. how do we change that? Where do, what, what is going to become, how do we fix that? Well, I mean, there's been people trying to fix it for a while. So there's, I mean, 40 Act funds, specifically interval funds, those are semi-liquid investment vehicles that if you're non-accredited, you could go on to a platform like TD Ameritrade or Schwab, and you could invest inside of those. And they're essentially, every quarter, they're, they're able to liquidate 5% of the total fund. So if people want their money out of those, if, if you had a flood on the fund, like this is kind of what happened during COVID, there was a lot of real estate interval funds that weren't doing so well. And so a lot of investors went to redeem their shares, but they can only do 5% of the fund value. So if you went to redeem your shares out of that, that real estate investment, you maybe got 50% or 25% of what you actually were trying to get out of it. But that is a step forward to, you know, a traditional go buy a commercial building. You got to find someone to market it, sell it. That could be months, right? Um, they don't have that for land investing. You know, there's certain restrictions inside those, those 40 act funds where you can't, you know, there's, there's certain restrictions on the types of assets and the percentage weights inside of them. So they're trying, you know, to, to open that gap between non-accredited getting access to alternatives. But what happens is, you know, that's the traditional route. You're still the underlying properties and the shares it's all done the traditional way, which is paper. 
So the costs are extremely high to run an interval fund. High so, transaction costs. Exactly. Um, and admin costs. So when you start looking at <laughs> investing in a commercial property, and then if you look at an interval fund, by the time you take out all of the fees, the liquidity premium pretty much disappears, and it, it's like you're investing in bonds. Like there's no benefit on a risk return basis to using them because the fee structure is so high. Um, that leads us to kind of what we were talking about, you know, uh, last night. And the more exciting part of this conversation, I think, is the uh, advent of of DeFi, which is decentralized finance um, tokens. I don't know if your listeners, you know, they following this NFT craze. What is NFT? That's a non fungible token, and it's really hard not to get technical. So I'm not. I'm just not even going to go down that route. But essentially. Digital currency, would that be a layman's yeah. term? Yeah, digital currency, but it's essentially, you know, if you have a single property, a non-fungible token is a unique asset. So like a piece of art, that if you wanted to consider that and, and put that on the blockchain so other people can buy a fraction of it, that would be its own NFT, non-fungible token, because there's no other piece of art like it. Bitcoin is a fungible token. I give you a Bitcoin, you give me a Bitcoin, it's the same thing, right? I give you a Mona Lisa and you give me a Van Gogh, not the same thing. So that's where you start looking at real estate. Each piece of real estate technically is unique, right? Absolutely. It is 100% purely unique. No, Especially in Montana. Yep. No, no two parcels mm -hmm. are alike, even in your 70-track subdivisions. Yeah. Which, which, by the way, is fairly unique to the West, because I know from, you know, a lot of the training I do is nationally based and a lot of the certifications and training for rural appraiser appraisers like myself is based on Midwest farmland because that's kind of the dominant ag sector, I guess. But, you know, out there, corn, you know, 150 bushel corn acreage is 150 acres. You know, it's much more of a commodity. It's much more. And it, it sometimes people, whether they're new to Montana or they're reviewing appraisals from Montana and they're from out of state, don't realize Montana land is not a good commodity, doesn't fit the definition of a commodity well in that sense. Uh, neighboring properties can uh, have almost no comparability to each other. It's uh, almost like every ranch has its own market. Yeah. Whereas in the Midwest, your, your farmland is a market right mm -hmm. um so yeah and with that there are publicly traded reits out there gladstone uh which ticker symbol land great ticker symbol and farmland partners uh, fpi and they do uh they do invest in farmland for the alternative asset investors for those who want exposure to um the appreciating land values scarcity of resources uh, the, the future of food supply, all the, all the reasons you'd invest in farmland, they're providing it. Normally when you go public, you get a 15% bump in your price because of liquidity. But what I've noticed with Gladstone and FPI is now that they're publicly traded, they track with, with the market. They're highly correlated to, to what the market is doing and that defeats the purpose of having a, a zero beta. It mm -hmm. defeats the purpose of having no correlation, an inflation hedge, um, a hedge against the equities market. So what you're telling me, Sean, is um, you can keep the intrinsic value, the uniqueness of each ranch, and open it up to 
how do you open it up to uh, your everyday investor with well the, with this uh, NFT and tokenizing? So I think you know if you just take a you know call it a ten million dollar ranch, right? And you you know and traditionally you would have maybe one or two ultra high net worth or high net worth investors coming together to buy that ranch, le probably lease it out to an operation. Um, if you think of the amount of buyers for that piece of land, you're, I mean, I don't know how many, but I could tell you if you can figure out how to open that up to non-accredited investors and fractionalize that, where now if I have a thousand bucks, I can invest in that property alongside you know thousands of other investors. That's really the mechanism to open the door to allow it. And NFTs, they, they should be able to provide that. And without you know getting deep into the weeds on it, I think it's essentially just like think of it like a um, like a company. If the ranch is a company and you have originally two owners going into it, but now with an NFT, you can make that ranch instead of having paper shares. So I give you your fifty percent, I have my fifty percent. We both have shares, you know, a certain amount of shares that are on paper. You digitize those paper shares. And then you can slice and dice those paper shares so they're a lot smaller fraction. Because it's digital and all the accounting can be coded into that token, like dividends, distributions, um, taxes, proxy voting, taxes. K-1 distributions. Exactly. All the reasons I was telling you that interval funds are extremely high cost. The advent of NFTs in the blockchain, the whole point is to eliminate those intermediaries by automating all of that. And I'm, no, I'm by no means an expert in the blockchain or you know, crypto or Bitcoin. I just know that this technology, from what I've been trying to do the last three years of democratizing alternatives and figuring out how to get the average Joe access to these investments that have typically been reserved for pensions and ultra high net worth individuals, this opens the door for that to be possible. So you, you mentioned the $10 million ranch. Yeah. Uh, I think... At any given time, a $10 million ranch has uh, ready, willing, and able buyers. I think the market is, what, Andy, 500 individuals across the United States? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's a pretty limited market. But if you open that up to, um, to union employees, bus drivers, and, and uh, cooks, yeah. and, and uh, other professionals, doctors, who want uh, the benefits of investing in a ranch, uh, now, now your market is... Uh, 25, 30, 40 million people as opposed to 500. And mm -hmm. I love this concept because I would, I would buy a piece of the Mona Lisa just to say I have a piece of the Mona Lisa. And I'm long on the value of Van Gogh, of Picasso, of uh, Andy Warhol. And uh, uh, who's our guy out of Cody? Abstract expressionism. Uh, I don't know. But there's lots of artists in Montana and Wyoming. You yeah. Know, that, that, yeah. I would, and I'm long on the value of those pieces of art, or maybe it's a rare gem, that if you were to uh, tokenize and democratize and open it up, I would start throwing money at some of these alternative assets. And I, so my ask of our listeners right now, is this something you would be interested in? Would you, would you buy a token of a uh, 20,000 acre Western Montana ranch? Uh, land and uh, is that something you'd be interested in? Just please hit us up on Facebook or, or email. Well, and I'm also really interested on the you know ranch management, family ownership side because I mean we 
we preface this uh, podcast talking about the disproportionate amount of, you know, only wealthy people can own ranches. And one of the problems and implications with that is that the actual operators, you know, the people producing our food can't afford, you know, to buy land that they, they operate on. So this is all early stage and, and there's a lot of details and technicalities, but the, the opportunity or the potential for, you know, family ag operations potentially to access the resource they need land without necessarily having to buy it outright, you know, whether they could be kind of in an investment partnership, so to speak, um, you know, where they could, they could manage. And, and like you talked about, it's like a company or like a fund, you know, the, the, the land is a, is a multi-tiered entity that uh, they manage and run and potentially have control over, but don't have to buy outright, you know, other people could invest in. And, and like Coulter said, you know, it's not hard to imagine that there might be investors that would actually be interested in that to be able to say for a couple thousand dollars, you own a part of the West, uh, you're helping support a family farm potentially, or, you know, you're, you're part of the food supply, you're part of the preservation of the West. I mean, those are all interesting uh, potential outcomes. Yeah. From so this. Sean, is this theoretical? Is this what's on the horizon? Or, I mean, we do have crowdsourcing, uh, crowdsource funding, uh, there's several platforms out there. CrowdStreet is mm-hmm. one I'm familiar with for commercial real estate. And we've been crowdfunding venture capital investments. We've been crowdfunding donations. Um, mm-hmm. So that I'm familiar with crowdfunding. Uh, crowd investing or, or tokenization. Is this happening with legitimate alternative assets already? So there's the best example I could give you is that there's a... Um, there's a company called Liquify out there that's creating a platform to allow you to trade, you know, alternative investments like it's a, a, a open market. And one of the examples I'll give is they actually tokenized a copper mine in South America, and it's being traded very infrequently and very, you know, it's it costs a lot to kind of get in there and trade it. But there's liquidity for a copper mine in South America, right? So... It's being done, but I would say if you're thinking of a baseball game, this is inning two, maybe even inning one. Hmm. It's very, very new, and there's a lot of challenges from all the stuff we just talked about, a lot of challenges to be able to effectively do it. And going all the way back to where we started, how do you protect investors, right? Because you're going to have a lot of bad actors in this space. That's unfortunately what happens when there's anything that you can make money on in finance and and insurance industry. There's always going to be bad actors. And so, you know, my, my entire goal is to create a platform eventually to provide that layer of due diligence and fiduciary responsibility to make sure all these non-accredited investors or whoever's investing in these properties and not just ranch land, but, you know, think of all the other alternative investments that we talked about, commercial real estate, um, you know, private debt funds, um, infrastructure, movies, art, intellectual property, all of the types of alternatives the average person doesn't even understand stocks. So to build that barrier to get into alternative investing too, you have to have some layer of financial literacy and education for whoever's investing in those. So that has to be part of it. Um, I think otherwise people aren't going to know what they're investing in. And if, you know, markets go up and down, like we're talking happy and, you know, <laughs> I think typically ranch land appreciates, right? I mean, there's, yeah. has there ever been a negative year in ranch land? 
Yeah, for sure on a one-year basis, but uh, basically our five-year hold period. Yeah, or you know, more like seven is yeah. the is the longest. Yeah, that's what I always say is you know you can't you can't not make money holding for seven years in Ranchland yeah. in Montana over the past thirty years. Um, yeah, how do that, you make money in real estate? Time, time, and money. Yeah, yeah, and that's sure. that's the extreme. You know, that's if you bought uh, pre-crash and you know had to wait to recover. But so you know just depending on the timing, but a couple years. Yeah. 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 So yeah, they're with events like, uh, GameStop, uh, irrational, <laughs> emotional and vote, uh, buying. Um, there would have to be a fiduciary an agent who's looking out for your best interest. Um, because the average person wants, I, I mean, email me people tell me if the <laughs> average person wants to invest in, in a Western ranch, setting um but they don't know what they're getting into and so they do need to be protected and and there are going to be bad actors but a lot of this is going to be taken care of because of uh technology because we have better transparency Mm -hmm. you have the blockchain you can track exactly the source of the money uh there will not be a lot of uh washing of blood money out there and drug money uh, like they say is happening with uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, this is, you would track it back. You would actually own a piece of the ranch and know who the investor is and they would know to that day what their dividend is, dividend is going to look like or their K-1 depreciation that they're going to be able to report on their tax returns uh, as a write-down against their regular income. So that is great. Let's talk about this as liquidity for ranch owners, as Andy was mentioning. If if uh, because a lot of these people who've been chiming in on Facebook have asked about find me an investor, uh, how do I sell part of my place to finance the rest of it to keep going? Uh, so they're looking for ranch owners are looking for liquidity, and the problem is some of them are looking to have their cake and eat it too. They want liqui- liquidity and full control. Um, <laughs> but let's say let's say someone is actually uh, legitimately interested in the revenue cash flow model of their place and they say you know i i could clear up some debt here um i'll sell a third of this offer a two percent pref preferred return and uh Mm -hmm. is is this tokenized if i if i tokenized my ranch is there a marketplace i mean how would i do that sell one third of it to the masses to a hundred thousand people I mean, you basically have to recreate what Goldman Sachs has been doing for publicly traded markets, right? I mean, they, they take a private company, they go on a roadshow, pump up the company and say, you know, hey, here, how many shares do you guys want? And they create buyers. So it's, I mean, mm-hmm. the typical, the, no matter what company you ever build or fund, you, customer acquisition is the number one problem. That's, it's the number one challenge you got to solve. So I think the first step is figuring out are people interested in investing in ranch land? If yes, you know, you're talking millions and millions of people. So then you have to create a mechanism to where if, if that ranch owner wants to liquidate a piece of it. And I just, the analogy is like if Apple's raising capital, they, they sell more equity shares or they go raise debt. They go issue more debt, right? Same thing would apply to a ranch owner. If they want to, if they want to raise capital and liquidity to maybe expand their operation or whatever they want to do with it, they can tokenize a piece of their farm. You don't have to do the entire thing. You can have different types of shares within that structure. 
but let's just pretend that they do that. Now they have, let's say, $10 million ranch. They tokenize $2 million of it, right? So now there's $2 million worth of tokens that would go onto a platform like a Coinbase or a StellarX, some type of platform where I could open my app and go buy one of those tokens, and now I own a piece of that ranch. If you just did that without marketing and trying to get people interested in actually investing in ranch land and had like, you know, a separate app that I was kind of talking about as a fiduciary where you're like, you're marketing to these people to try to get them to invest in it. You still have to create liquidity on the back end of that. So I think if you just did it without doing any marketing and, and you didn't find out if they were interested and then the tokens were just there, I think it'd be bad. <laughs> you have to, you know, first create liquidity by finding people interested in investing in it. And then if you have an application that has followers like a CrowdStreet or, you know, whomever, you find interested buyers. It's just like what you do in brokerage, right? You have to find a buyer for the seller. They're selling a piece of their ranch, not the whole thing. The buyers in this case aren't an ultra high net worth investor. They're a bunch of smaller investors. It makes me think if who's likely to do this first is uh you know, a wealthy, a wealthy landowner that that's, I don't know, idealistic or, you know, uh, need something fun to do. I mean, we see this all the time. Things like regenerative, regenerative agriculture and progressive things are often done by people with the, that have the money to, to, to play it out first, you know, don't, don't have the highest risk. So I wonder if we'll see something like that. Um, you know, just creative, it's just creative land management or land development strategies that we've seen more in a physical realm, like, like creative development strategies, like the Sun Ranch and the Madison or different things like that. But if somebody's going to come along and take this essentially into the digital space is what we're talking about, which is pretty interesting because it's, it's, it's digital space. It's in the, it's in, it's ethereal. It's, you know, not on the land itself. I mean, anytime you democratize something, it seems like that is long-term good, that you're actually creating value and you're improving society in general. I mean, I do not like uh, Twitter, but they democratized opinions. Everyone was allowed to state their opinion. Did you know consumer demand for outdoor recreation is an over $17 billion marketplace? Savvy investors do, and they're using a secret weapon to access the demand. It's called Land Trust. Land Trust, the recreational access network, connects ranchers, farmers, and ranch investors with outdoor enthusiasts seeking private land access. This online marketplace makes it easy and safe to gain year-round income from hunting, fishing, photography, and more. You don't even have to be there. Be the wiser investor with a new secret weapon. Visit LandTrust.com slash RanchInvestor to learn more. That's LandTrust.com slash RanchInvestor. Well, you know, another thing that comes to mind, we, we've been talking a lot about the potential for quote unquote average, you know, or just, yeah, average investors to get involved and in whether there's interest or in demand. And we do want our listener base to, to weigh in on that. But I've heard this for a long time too, from my, basically from progressive uh, financial advisor types like yourself, who say there's a lot of investors out there hungry for alternative investments, whether, you know, not that the market hasn't been good, been good in general, but Either they want something they're more connected to or, uh, you know, there's various reasons, various motivations for alternative investments that I keep hearing. You know, they want more tangibility or something they can connect to or even the local movement, you know, instead of just being kind of on this international marketplace for, for equities, you know, can I, can I put some money locally? Uh, we have a lot of people, high net worth people that are relatively new to Montana 
and and they're in love and they want to actually put some of their money on the ground here. So there's also that side of this thing, not just not just maybe a lower entry point investment, but I'm thinking about actually high net worth individuals that uh, want to do different things with their money. Really good point. And I think you hit on something that's not, it historically hasn't been what, you know, the baby boomers and, and others have, traditionally their investments were 60-40, right? You put 60% stocks, 40% bonds, or, you know, one minus, you know, 100 minus your age is, you know, the, the <laughs> typical allocation. Hmm. Um, but I think when you, what you're seeing with millennials and Gen Z and these younger generations, I mean, there's going to be, $60 trillion in wealth transferring over the next 35 years from that traditional, you know, asset allocator to millennials and Gen Z's that care about the company they're investing, you know, start getting into ESG investing, which is environmental, social and governance. That's the t traditional kind of public equity type investing in companies that have a mandate of, let's say by 2030, they want to be net neutral for their carbon footprint you know, 45% of millennials care about that. That's a lot of people. And, you know, and not just millennials, but you think of women investors too. I mean, there's going to be a hell of a lot of wealth transferring to women and 90% of them based on Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, very sophisticated research companies say that they also care where their money's going. It's no longer, let's blindly put it into the S&P 500 they want to invest in companies they believe in that are doing the right thing. They're aligned with their values. And so that's called values-based investing. You're investing in companies not for the return necessarily, but because their values are aligned with yours. And there's, you know, there's a, there is a return premium for that, and it's a psychological return. It's not necessarily you know, a, a monetary return. It may be less than if you were just to invest in the S&P, but the intangible benefit you get from doing that, same reason why people, you know, bought Beeple's $69 million digital art piece through this token mechanism, it's not worth $69 million tangibly. It's intangible value is why people pay for that. That's art in general. There's no, it's not rational, <laughs> but that's, that's the whole point, I think, of democratizing alternatives and also aligning that with impact investing and ESG, which Coulter, I know you, you know, you're raising grass fed Wagyu, correct? Was. Was, okay. <laughs> but, you know. I've, He's in recovery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to quit bad habits. <laughs> okay. He's trying to get over psychological investments. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to simplify it, investments that align with people's values i think there's for grasslands in general and, and ranch land there's there's the potential for carbon sequestration so i don't know if you guys have had anyone on talking about that yet we have talked about it but not in depth we other mitigation yeah. um experts yeah and we're we're bringing in another guest who's going to talk about monetizing uh the carbon sequestration credits how you can marketplace those and are you saying that you could tokenize your carbon sequestration credits or you could tokenize your mineral rights or you could tokenize your wind rights? So, I mean, I'm not an expert in carbon offset markets by any means, but the way that I understand it is if you have a company like Exxon that has, you know, what, however many tons of carbon they're putting into the atmosphere, and then you have projects, um, 
like let's say a, a regenerative agriculture project where you're actually creating deeper roots into the soil and it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere there's companies that come in and they measure you know what the sink is how much carbon is this actually sequestering and then there's a market for the for the offset so if you're a company that has a positive footprint how much do you have to pay to get to zero and a hell of a lot of companies are saying by 2030 their their goal is to get to net zero net zero means you're buying offsets you're not going to eliminate it just by driving electric vehicles and putting solar panels up there's still there's always going to be some component and analysts estimate about 15 percent of you know kind of by 2050 let's get to neutral 15% of that's going to have to be by offsets. So you can't eliminate all of it just by changing behaviors and, um, you know, solar or, or whatever. So the answer is yes, you could tokenize that. There's actually a token out there, and I, the name is slipping me, but they basically have carbon offset programs. So it's a company, just like we've been talking about, but that company's investing in these carbon offset programs, and then they created a token that you can go buy that has a negative carbon footprint so when you buy one of those tokens you know let's say you buy a bitcoin that has a positive carbon footprint you buy a certain amount of that token that offsets the carbon footprint of the bitcoin yeah and i'm no expert in uh carbon or carbon markets either but there have there have been ranches there have been properties that have sold in montana that reportedly uh were part of a, a carbon offset program and i think the 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 model it particularly is taking cropland out of production and putting it into grassland. That's a heavy carbon sink. Uh, but there was a ranch just outside of town here that was uh, reportedly purchased by a plastics CEO and that he was getting some carbon credits. Um, but whether those actually transpired, uh, you know, I don't know. And I, I have been asked before that, you know, we've seen talking about bad actors or maybe I'll be gracious and just say um, innovative uh, <laughs> looking for new alternatives but you know I've been called in on some projects where you know the, they want the they want the value bumped up of a of a transaction or of a because of the carbon offset potential and my understanding is those markets just aren't established yet I mean certainly as an appraiser I can't say oh this ranch <clears throat> has a million additional value because it has carbon offset potential and I've been asked to do that which you know is is it makes you laugh but uh but I think it's coming, and I, I will say uh, that topic comes up more and more and more, and I, I've gotten calls from brokers. I've gotten calls, you know, so it's it's on the horizon without a doubt. But I, I think those markets aren't really established yet, though. Isn't that correct? Or 100%, yeah. yeah. It's, it, the, the price for a ton of offset ranges from 15 bucks to 700 Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, and there's really no standards out there yet. There's no real... There is a marketplace, right? But there's no standard. And it's, you know, there's, it's like the Wild West is yeah. the best way that I can explain it. Um, Bill Gates is actually, they, they have a company that create, or they work with a company that basically has a gold standard for what a carbon offset is, and they go through their own evaluation process. So it's, again, inning two, I would say. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these things are inning two, which is what makes it so exciting. Well, isn't part of the, you know, I mean, just to, just to go into essentially starting any new market, which is we've been talking, that kind of runs through this whole conversation we've had on this podcast. The scary thing is, is you just, you, you got to start a market and you just don't know how it's going to shake out, right? You just got to, but it, 
build it and they will come and then then the market establishes itself and finds its finds its equilibrium and then you move forward but it's pretty scary especially early investors or early developers i mean you know it's a high risk so and that that takes me the next steps sean where do we go from here it seems like we have the technology blockchain would make this transaction uh, very low cost, transaction cost, very high transparency, great for the efficient market hypothesis. Lots of buyers, lots of sellers, great for efficient market hypothesis. Um, liquidity, again. So blockchain, um, tokens using the blockchain, it's there. We have the technology. It's proven technology. It's capable. It seems to me like... And we don't want to go public because when you go public, now you lose the portfolio theory value of the alternative asset. Now your your stock is going to track with the market and it's going to be um, highly exposed to interest rates. And it's not true to what how the actual performance of that asset. So it's almost like you want to keep it semi, semi-private, um, avoid the SEC, uh, avoid public markets although you want access to the masses you want to democratize it is the next step there needs to be an exchange there needs to be a platform there needs to be a marketplace two-sided marketplace created to where uh, ranchers can tokenize their ranch and uh, retail investors can buy tokens in in that ranchers place well those exchanges already exist they're the same exchanges that you would go buy a bitcoin or ethereum or um, any of these other cryptocurrencies like when i mentioned coinbase or stellar x those are exchanges where you can buy and sell tokens i think it would probably be a, a worthwhile exercise to to imagine just creating an exchange specifically for the buying and selling of asset-based tokens not necessarily cryptocurrency which is not asset-based, but actual fractionalized real assets um, in exchange specifically for that. So yeah, I think you're right. That that could be the next frontier of it. Um, I think before any of that happens, it needs to be understood that do people even want to invest, right? Because if, if there's nobody that wants to, I mean, there, I'm sure there's a percentage of the population that would love investing in ranch land, but you know, it does cost money to tokenize right because you're doing a regular regulatory offering just like taking a company public so you have to file you know it's either a, a reg s or a you know crowdfunding you mentioned that's a reg cf you still have to file and it has to be approved by the sec so there's a cost to that so if you're talking a million dollar ranch and it costs three hundred thousand to to tokenize it doesn't make sense right so you're going to limit and those prices should come down over time the the cost to do that um but there still is that inherent cost, so there, it wouldn't make sense for all of the ranches. Um, but yes, an exchange exists already to, to buy and sell, but it would be interesting to, to create one specifically for asset-based tokens. Is this something you would be personally interested in working on if someone out there was interested that um, this is something that's kept you up at night and you're <laughs> thinking, how do I... How do I create this market uh if you're solving a problem i mean if you're going to create value in society you have to solve a problem and give people a solution um i i would say the problem is that um teachers and widowers do not have access to investing in western ranches yeah um 
So are you a guy that they can reach out to you on LinkedIn, nextgenfg.com, or your phone number, 406-422-0575. You're a Montanan. We take phone calls. We just, it, we, <laughs> yes. we answer our phone. Yeah, we uh, never mentioned you're a Helena native and, and live in Helena. Of yeah. course. Yep. So we need to get that out there. Um, is this something that keeps you up at night? Is solving the problem, how do I help uh, teachers and widowers invest in Western ranches? Yeah, I would expand that a little just from Western ranches to alternatives in general. You know, giving people that have been shunned from these markets access to these markets is one of my primary missions in life. Mm. Um, and then a step further is getting them access to impact investing because, you know, I do adhere to that, you know, methodology. And I, I believe that if you can give give capital, get more capital flowing into that space, with, I mean, $60 trillion of wealth transferring and the majority of the people that wealth's coming to believe in that kind of stuff. Give our listeners a quick uh, definition of impact investing in case they don't know. So impact investing would be, um, you know, <laughs> it's so broad, but a good example would be regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to invest in a project that was doing, taking a non-regenerative, you know, piece of land, converting it into a regenerative agriculture operation, you're having a positive impact on the environment. And so impact in general terms just means positive, positive impact, positive, positive impact yep. investing. Yeah. Doing more than just returns yeah. on the investment, but yep. social environmental uh, benefits. Exactly. Um, and you know, that space in particular is reserved for institutional investors and, and ultra high net worth kind of multifamily office type groups. Cause the minimums to get into those types of investments are so high. Right. Now, what's funny is CalPERS, you know, the people who actually are, are investing the pensioners' money, they invest in this kind of stuff, right? But then the actual um, teacher, they're getting a 60-40 portfolio at Schwab. And that's, if you can change that dynamic, now you're just basically giving people access to a wider range of assets that should diversify their portfolio without sacrificing returns and hopefully increasing their returns. Not to uh, throw Schwab or any retail investment uh, management company under the bus, but I mean that's what keeps people poor is they just sixty forty they can't do anything creative uh, regulations stipulate that uh, they're gonna have to be so conformist I don't know if it keeps them poor it keeps maybe, them poor maybe keeps them from being fabulously wealthy but I don't know about <laughs> I'm not sure if it's put puts anyone in debtor's prison or uh, no, on the streets. No, but <laughs> yeah, but average and people. Yeah, you can, you can, as we've seen in 2020, um, a ranch I just sold, I valued at 650 thousand two years ago. It sold for 1.4 million. Hmm. That created real wealth, real tangible wealth because of 2020. Your average person doesn't have access to that because it's going into their 401k. It's going into bonds, which are about to implode. Yeah, so I think wealth inequality is a thing, right? I think it's widely accepted that there's wealth inequality in the United States and across the world. What tokens and this technology have the potential to do, and you're already seeing it with artists and musicians, it's getting the money more spread out. It's no longer being concentrated in the people who control you know, the wealth. That's the biggest 
I think disruption that I see is it, it gives the opportunity for the wealth redistribution. So it's no longer an exclusive club. Everybody gets access to those types of investments, which may drive down returns because now there's more demand and, you know, it happens supply demand. There's only a limited amount of ranch land, right? But I think that's, you know, if listeners take one thing away, I think this technology has the ability to redistribute the wealth, which is what is fascinating about it to me. And give give us access to things we haven't previously had access to. So with real tangible alternative assets, if you find a Jackson Pollock, that was the name I was looking for, Mm -hmm. abstract expressionalism. He's originally from Cody, Wyoming. I think that's just so badass and cool because he is the name for for the art movement. Uh, If you find a a Jackson Pollock or someone out there who wants to tokenize it, I'm in. (laughs) Reach out to me, big fan. Uh, Just proud that he's from this area and he was really weird in new york city yeah <laughs> go, to, go to masterworks they do fractionalized art awesome yeah. so, so it's happening oh of course. oh 100 with with art it's it's already happening i mean you have even cars now classical cars have been fractionalized and you can own a piece of a million dollar car right um hmm. and baseball cards you know like nba top shot from mark cuban like you can buy a fraction of a video clip <laughs> from like NBA experiences, right? So yes, 100%, this is already happening. The asset-based component of it, the silver mine analogy that I get, or the copper mine, that's how slow it's moving on actual asset-based because it's a little more difficult. Well, and again, not only the <clears throat> teacher pensioner side of it, but I guess the supply side with the land resource. Again, I'm thinking about uh, food producers, operators, you know, and what the future of that, because, um, right now, you know, if you don't inherit a place, the prospect of being in food production, you know, unless you're just going to go work for somebody, which is probably the model moving forward. But kind of what comes to my mind is the future, uh, agriculturalists, you know, can they, uh, you know, be trained and educated in that, go to work, possibly go to work on a place that, uh, they could actually invest in, as as part of a token, you know, it's a, it's a maybe a, a I guess a publicly traded entity, or it's a or it's a fractionalized entity, uh, and they run the place or work the place, uh, but actually could invest themselves in absolutely a, through a tokenization. So maybe that's kind of the future of. Um, I mean, when I wanted to be an operator and was coming out of school and was going around talking to uh, FSA and and you know guys like that, how to get started without owning a place, having a family place, and I was told go back to school, get more training and, you know, plan to work for somebody. Uh, give, cause I was, I, w- I was hell bent on owning, tr- figuring out how to own a place, beginning farmer programs, that kind of stuff. And was, I mean, this was 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you know, give it, give it up. You know, the prospect of owning and operating at the same time, unless you inherit land is pretty much out of reach. Well, it could be a reward system to attract good operators too. You give them shares of the, of the ranch to, to come manage it. Right. right. Similar to a publicly traded company, you get, you know, um, private shares that, you know, restricted stock type stuff. It's the same concept. Yeah. Yeah. Goal and performance metrics. For yeah. Your, yeah. So you don't have cowboys breaking equipment out there and yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting about all this and culture way on, on this as well. I mean, obviously the, the dominating model right now is wealthy individuals buying these places and leasing them out or hiring people to run it, you know? And uh, the reality we know from being part of these transactions that only works so well. There's actually a fair, uh, there's a fairly high washout factor. I mean, 
a lot of people end up getting tired of that scenario. That's it's a lot of responsibility to own a ranch, even if you try to set up to be relatively passive. At the end of the day, it's it's a lot of work and a lot of effort on your part, and there's actually a fairly high amount of transition there. So that model only really works so so well. I mean, you know, forever I'm sure we'll have wealthy individuals that buy ranches and and you know love it and and. Uh, you know, want to want to be there and want to pass it on legacy ownership to their family, that kind of stuff. But there's a limit to that. Um, and so maybe this is an alternative that, uh, you know, maybe more places should be in kind of a multi-ownership structure, I guess. I think, I think it's, uh, hopefully it's right around the corner. And uh, we have people messaging us like Orion Stevens. He's a rancher in Hawaii. <laughs> And uh, thanks, Orion, for messaging us. Um, and Dustin Kuykendall, uh, he's also reached out. And there, th- we need creative ways for owner-operators to compete with gentrification. Because when people hear of gentrification, they think of an old shithole mill district in a, in a city, <laughs> in an iron steel town, or, or an artsy district that was invaded by the wealthy. Um, Harlem or uh, Brooklyn, but gentrification is 2020 Montana ranch sales. Uh, the wealthy have moved in, uh, have displaced the locals, um, driven up prices, uh, changed the value, changed the culture, changed the scene. That gentrification has been a long time coming for ranch land sales, and landowners, owner operators need a creative way to compete with that. And you've mentioned uh, tokenizing. Um, uh, operational metrics such as regenerative, holistic, you could tokenize carbon, uh, carbon, uh, wildlife, um, wind. So Sean, where, where, if someone's interested in this, as we wrap this up, where should they go next? Um, you mean just interested in investing in ranch land in general and this kind of concept of, you don't have to have two million bucks to, to be an investor. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't exist, right? So I think the first step is seeing if people are interested. And I think that's where, you know, you have a great following that can give you some insight into that, I think. So, but I mean, the next step, you know, go to YouTube and Google NFT or (laughs) Google NFT or just start learning, right? Um, And I'm always open to have conversations with people about this kind of stuff because I love it. And I think that, you know, the next at least 10 years of my life, I'm going to be trying to figure out how to do it. So I'm always going to be learning more. Um, and I have partners and I have, you know, a, a couple um, very, very smart individuals that have actually started companies to tokenize so that they already have their operation in existence that allows you to tokenize a ranch or a company or, or whatever. So, I mean, if there's people that are interested in actually tokenizing, you know, one of my partners is actually capable of doing that at this point. So give me a call. Man, that, that's a lot to unpack, <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. I love it because I. This is going to be revolutionary when you when you bring that bar down, the barrier to entry. You're kind of knocking down the walls or breaking the glass ceiling, whatever analogy you want to use. I think this will, just like gentrification, change the face of ranching and Western land ownership. Uh, this democratization and tokenization of land ownership is going to change society. I agree. Powerful stuff. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, thank you you guys for having me. That was was fun. Yeah, and and, uh, finally, one more shout-out. I got to get my plugs in. Um, 
thanks to Robert Majerus, the ranch manager at Shields Valley Ranch in Wilsall. Andy, do you know him? Yeah, when you I lived, did, yeah, yeah. When you lived do. in Wilsall, uh, he reached out, had some good feedback, and uh, very talented guy. He was talking about some ranch managers need to come together and uh, have more peer support and be able mm-hmm. to talk to each other about methods that are working, improving, and we talked about regenerative agriculture and. So you ranch managers out there uh, get together, kind of like uh, he mentioned Robert did uh, executive link through Ranching for Profit. Dave Pratt puts that together as a peer study type uh, group. But yeah, there's improvements that could be made so that each ranch is not operating in a vacuum as its own little empire or island. Uh, thanks, Robert. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Please hit us up with your thoughts. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us today on RanchInvestor.com podcast. We have a few things of note, uh, some housekeeping to take care of. Coulter DeVries is a licensed real estate broker in Montana and Wyoming. Andy Ron is a Montana certified general appraiser and accredited through the American Society of Farm Managers and Rural Appraisers. Denver Gilbert is a licensed real estate broker in four states. I say this because there are still 12 states that are non-disclosure, meaning we do not have the privilege of releasing private and confidential information from certain land markets. We have fiduciary and agency relationships that we take very seriously and would not seek to compromise these duties. In this podcast, we do not report information pertaining to specific clients or market participants unless it is public knowledge. Our reporting is not to be misconstrued as legal or financial advice, even though we may have opinions as to what one ought to do when it comes to ranch and land investing. Advice is only worth what you pay for it, and you are receiving this for free. So if you would like further information, please reach out to any of the hosts or guests on your own accord. We enjoy hearing your feedback, so please post in questions or comments to our Ranch Investor private group on Facebook. If you do not have Facebook, please send to comments at ranchinvestor.com. And thank you for listening.